I'm All ready. right, we're live. It's hopefully almost. on YouTube and Facebook and Discord. Excellent. So, good uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, for those of you who are joining us for the first time or haven't joined us for a while, my name's Josh. Um, we got Dan, uh, Alex, and Dave with us this evening. Um, we'll go over a couple of uh, cool news articles, stuff that's happening in the community, and. Uh, uh, to the community, uh, and then uh, we'll see if we got some updates on uh, some uh, regulation and whatnot that's going on. Um, I know the big topic right now um, among in the industry is going to be remote ID, um, as that's going live for manufacturers uh, next month. So on the twenty second, if I'm not mistaken, uh, September twenty. Oh, so September sixteenth. I'm sorry. So um, that's uh, definitely going to be a big topic. Uh, and on that topic, let me fully unprepare here. All right. Um, so on that topic, uh, the ASTM standard uh, has unofficially been uh, put up on the Federal Register. Um, it goes live tomorrow, and it goes through it's their uh, acceptance of a means of compliance uh, for remote ID. Uh, so this is a standard that uh, companies can use to create remote ID. And as long as it's made to the standard uh, and performs to the standard, it's going to be better uh, accepted from the FAA or have a better chance of it being accepted. Now that's assuming that the device performs as expected and the declaration of compliance is complete, um, all the other uh, different things. Uh, one of the differences that uh, the acceptance has over the ASTM standard, and Dave, you'll have to help me with this just to make sure, the FAA did amend this for hardening um, in terms of tamper resistance, uh, both uh, physically and digitally. Um, of the both the components and the information um, that the uh, broadcast module slash uh, remote ID would need to so uh, like standard remote ID. In short, it takes it. The uh, ASTM group created a standard, submitted it to the FAA for approval. The FAA said, "Yeah, your standard's pretty good, and we'll approve it. But here's some additional steps you have to take before it's actually like right. really approved." Right. And then Dave can and maybe explain what those the differences are. Absolutely, and uh, happy to say that I'm a member of the ASTM and I'm on this working group uh, for Remote ID and have been working um, actively for the last three years on this. So this is an amazing piece of work. There are um, over 130 people on distribution. It is absolutely who's who. Uh, in manned aviation or crude aviation, as well as unmanned, as well as telecom. And uh, so the level of expertise that uh, that we tapped into uh, was amazing. The additions uh, are the remote identification system shall protect the Part 89 required broadcast message from being altered or disabled by any person. The remote ID Identification system shall incorporate techniques or methods that reduce the ability of any person to physically or functionally modify or disable any aspect or component of the remote, remote identification system that could impact compliance with a remote identification rule. Uh, yeah, 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 whether it makes specified 
let's see, and yeah, provides major plans. Okay, yeah, in applying section 7.5.2 7 of ASTM um, F3586-22, the applicant shall determine whether the masking of the specified items from user input adequately provides the functional tamper resistance protection specified by the means of compliance. And if it does not, shall incorporate additional functional uh, tamper resistance techniques or methods in accordance with the means of compliance. So uh, this is pretty disturbing uh, to us uh, in the ASTM. Um, we had two full-time, or we had two um, full-timers, two people on the uh, from the FAA uh, sit in on all of our weekly meetings for three plus years uh, on this work. Um, had multiple uh, iterations with the FAA on this, and as uh, as it says back in the uh, uh, in the in the introduction of this uh, document, uh, this uh, the uh, ASTM um, submitted a final of this on May 13. So it took till uh, tomorrow to for the FAA to approve something that they have been working on with us uh, for three years. So and to make these uh, vague uh, three points. So we'll be meeting tomorrow. We'll figure out what uh, what the appropriate response is. Um, to me, as a uh, uh, someone from global tech, this is really difficult to understand what it is that they mean. Uh, we had uh, we spent hours and hours with the FAA and among the uh, the working group of the ASTM uh, talking about well, what does tamper resistance really mean? And it's not tamper proof. Uh, it's tamper resistant. So uh, we created a, a number of uh, ideas that were we felt uh, reasonable and. Uh, uh, within the spirit of the uh, of the guideline, I guess that uh, that didn't fly. Uh, forgive the pun uh, with the FAA at the uh, at the last minute, but uh, the num the thousands and thousands and thousands of person hours that have gone into this document uh, give some implication of uh, the level of difficulty of creating your own means of compliance and getting uh, FAA approval. From here, if anyone wants to create a broadcast module or a standard remote ID UAS, they would then need to pull down the uh, forms for a declaration of compliance, point to this uh, means of compliance, do the appropriate testing, fill out the forms, and submit it to the FAA for approval. That is not a trivial uh, endeavor in itself. So. Um, we're well aware that there are manufacturers that have been using the ASTM standard. Uh, they were work, they were members of the working group, and they are using it to write uh, their own declaration of compliance. So uh, we anticipate that there certainly will be uh, more than one uh, company that will be able to meet uh, the September 16, 2022 deadline for manufacturers. So does this ASTM standard cover both the standard remote ID and modules, or do you have to extrapolate Great. from one to the other? Great question. Yeah, it's explicit. There are uh, sections that uh, describe, here's the standard, here's a broadcast module. And okay. because of the differences in the requirements uh, from the uh, both the uh, ground control station vertical accuracy requirement, as well as emergency status, and there are a couple of, a couple of other minor ones. A big one, of course, is the uh, standard uh, re remote ID UAS. The entire aircraft has, has to go through a subpart F uh, production requirement uh, certification. And I would I guess that's it, a big deal. it doesn't quite cover things like 
how a manufacturer would have a firmware update to make their drone compliant, but they could use this standard to um, create their own um, and make it easier for themselves to, to get approval from the FAA. Absolutely. And so the, the, the message uh, element, for example, is spelled out in great detail. The um, uh, how what to use and what's recommended to use in terms of uh, Wi-Fi, uh, which which uh, uh, Bluetooth to use, which, uh, what technologies, what sort of antennas, antenna uh, radiation patterns, um, acceptance of uh, uh, that if we use uh, components that are FCC approved already, that that's an acceptable use. So there are a lot of uh, demonstration of uh, technology that has already been approved either by the FAA or the FCC that the FAA approves as a demonstration of compliance with the rule. That saves a ton of time uh, when you're developing a, uh, a product. Yeah, that's one thing I found yeah. very interesting about this uh, remote ID. Like the final rule says that it it could be something, anything that's compatible with like a mobile phone. So it could be Wi-Fi, it could be Bluetooth, but they don't specify the technology. And then this ASTM standard probably sort of picks a technology and says, this is how we're going to implement it. But somebody else could get a different means of compliance authorized by the FAA that uses a completely different technology. So that makes me think Absolutely. strange strange things like so if you've got an app on your phone that could work and detect remote id devices you could theoretically have a dozen different apps that only detect each different kind of remote id but i'm guessing the faa would whittle that down and say okay no we're only going to authorize the ones that follow the same sort of standard so you could have one app that that worked for all of them so this is a good example so it look look like we were going to recommend in the standard bluetooth 4 awesome Every phone on the, you know, every newish phone on the planet has Bluetooth 4. Great, great, sounds awesome. Oh, it doesn't incorporate the, the testing standard, so we'd have to write additional testing for the Bluetooth for, you know, for the uh, per person submitting the declaration of, a, of uh, compliance. So the group agreed we should go with Bluetooth 5, and so. That means that it will be able, uh, a lot of it will be able to be backward compatible, but for the uh, the programming and the work that uh, needs to be done, uh, the standard uh, specifies Bluetooth 5. So it's things like that that took hours and hours and hours of discussion that were, you know, just the level of detail and the the uh, diligence was just, a, uh, just an amazing uh, feat to watch and, and to be part of. Now, I don't know what I was expecting when I read the actual FAA document, but it, it's pretty light on details. Does that mean you have to get the actual standard from the ASTM, and is that something people have to pay for? Yeah, yeah. yes and yes. And so if um, if you're not a, uh, a member of the ASTM in some capacity or fashion, the, the documents are available. The um, uh, the FAA uh, memo describes uh, with the website uh, where the document can the ASTM standard can be purchased. ASTM is a uh, private uh, organization. It is an international standards uh, uh, development body, and they uh, raise money by selling the uh, uh, the intellectual capital. It's uh, so 
I believe it's about 125 bucks for a, a, a standard like this, 125 dollars mm. US, I should say. In the chat, Meet's um, saying it's he it was 60 dollars when he last looked. Okay. Maybe it's different for yeah, this standard. Link to the actual standard. One of them is 60, and the other one was 85 for okay, two, two versions. There are two. There is a 20. Uh, there is the the first, which is the um, was issued in October 2019. And the second standard, which is the combination of these two, comprised the means of compliance, which was approved by the FAA. So you have to have two, and there is no way that you could you could write a declaration of compliance without having the means of compliance document right in front of you. No, there's just not a chance. So yeah, great great question, Stan. I appreciate it. And I assume the ASTM group would be very unhappy if somebody bought that and it just made it public. Yeah, that's a that's a copyright <laughs> infringement. I mean that's sure. yeah, I mean that 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 stuff happens, but yeah. So <clears throat> real quick, so the means of compliance, that is the document that, that is basically the roadmap for how to accomplish remote ID to that standard, correct? And then Correct. the declaration of compliance, that's going to be on an individual uh, level. Uh, company A's declaration of compliance could be different from company B. And that's basically a document saying, this is the device we developed. This is us declaring that it's compliant with the means of compliance from the ASTM standard. Correct? Correct. And the, and the declaration of compliance must specify a specific means of compliance. I use this means of compliance for my testing. Here are the results of my testing that sort of that prove why I'm certifying this as uh, acceptable. Right. So <clears throat> the uh, ASTM standards body that created this, this is a three, three and a half year project amongst how many people? About 150 ish yeah, people. Easy. Yeah. And so for a, a separate organization to create their own means of compliance is not a not a small matter. So the amount of people I imagine who will be referencing the ASTM standard um, would be relatively high. And it's a, ASTM uh, is a pretty pro, excuse me, prolific uh, standards body. Um, if you look at electronics laying around your house, you'll see an ASTM logo on at least one of them, if not several. So they they develop standards that are uh, definitely um, you know worldwide approved and and utilized. So uh, this was a, a great undertaking, um, and I imagine now that the standard or the the means of compliance is is being published, uh, I'm curious to see if we see an uptick in um, submission. So in terms of, of organizations who are submitting for their standard remote ID. So organizations like DJI um, or Skydio, um, who are going to be selling drones in the United States, anybody who sells a drone for use in the United States after September 16th must comply with standard remote ID, correct? Um, I thought it was manufacture, not sell. Manufacture. Yeah, yeah a, I think the manufacturing date. They use the word produce. So anybody who yeah. produces, like creates, builds, manufactures, whatever. For use in the United States. And, um, this, is, and this is distinctly different from a kit or a home built. Right. Yeah. So that, that's a, a definite, distinct definition in the final rule. So 
Um, and then uh, actual users, end users, are required to be um, compliant with a remote ID starting next September. So um, that's uh, about when you'll, you know, we'll probably see uh, some different drops for uh, different types of remote ID. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, all that will be public information as people get their standards approved. Um, and for standard remote ID, the approval process is much, much different, correct? Um, they have to get type certified and, uh, and or uh, not type certified, but they have to get, each individual model needs to get certified. So. Right. We're um, hoping it's not a, which are hoping it's not a full type certification, but a, right. a sub RF uh, approval. So it, uh, manufacturing production uh, requirements satisfied. So uh, definitely uh, something to watch going forward. Um, and uh, I'm excited to see who who rolls out with what. Uh, so uh, yeah, this could be interesting to see who who's going to be some, uh, producing uh, drones for use in the United States. And here's the other thing is that now that we've you know, are starting to roll this out. This is going to start to, you know, roll out. I imagine with uh, in different formats. So uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, and I, I know Alex is going to keep an eye on the Federal Register for us. If though, so if there are any more means of compliances that pop up or any uh, declaration of compliances that pop, start popping up, um, he'll let us know, and we'll make sure everybody gets. Uh, to yeah, hear that's about uh, it. just the. As, as long as the Federal Register does uh, its automatic uh, forwarding notification, because I don't check the website sure. yep. ever. It's only <laughs> you've, got, the, you've got really uh, good filters set up. Yeah, you I do. Don't know what, I don't know <laughs> what I did to get them that good. but <laughs> Hey, you know what? Just keep doing what you're doing. Uh, uh, I that, yeah, I don't plan on it. <laughs> That's funny. So, but yeah, All I right. So... Uh, Going forward, and uh, Dave, I think you did send out this document that we've been working on to a couple different people, but we're working on clarifications on some remote ID situations. So uh, definitely, you know, stay tuned uh, for some of that information. Um, we've got some of that stuff going on. But in the meantime, um, this is something that popped up last year. Uh, it says a volcano that uh, erupted in Iceland. Um, and this was in March of last year. Uh, some of this footage we've shown on our uh, our, our show before, um, but I just thought this was the coolest thing. Uh, this is some unreleased footage. Oh yeah, I saw a really short clip of this too. It's pretty cool. Just like, I, I hope they've got a good zoom on their camera. Otherwise, I'd be panicking, like, uh, start lifting off soon. <laughs> so I did, I do remember when he was doing these shots originally um, that he either lost one of the drones or it came back severely damaged just from the heat. Because um, I imagine the heat on this is incredible. But super cool to watch this, you know, this lava bubbling up from you know, underneath the ground and, and starting to spill over. So um, 
he's going to start uh, as part of the anniversary. He's going to uh, start releasing some footage uh, that wasn't shown last year. Uh, so I'm definitely going to be keeping a lookout. Um, I follow him on Twitter uh, just because some of the stuff is so cool. And his name's Bjorn Steinbeck. Uh, he goes by at B Steinbeck on Twitter. Um, so uh, I'm going to be keeping a watch out for that because, I mean, just amazing use of a drone. I mean, just the footage alone, I can imagine, has, has been, you know, a, a boon for the scientific community. Um, and while, you know, we've been studying volcanoes for, you know, eons, um, this is just, you know, never before seen kind of stuff. So pretty cool. Um, all right. So. Nothing's ever complete unless we have a DJI leak. So uh, this seems to be par for the course. And uh, so the new DJI Avada, um, this is their Cine Whoop drone. I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but I do. what I do want to kind of spend time on is the new Goggle 2s that are being uh, kind of leaked as well. Uh, so we don't know if the goggles are going to be uh, compliant with any of the existing uh, current... Uh, uh, air units or the uh, Cadex units or the DJI FPV or anything like that. So, but the, the new goggles are significantly smaller, um, have less antennas, uh, at least the leaked footage of them. Well, the leak talks about uh, two external antennas that are removable, like that you see they're folding up and two built in yep. antennas. So, um, definitely interesting. And also, uh, can DJI, like, they are the worst at naming products ever. <laughs> yeah. The DJI they, FPV they really drone are. versus the DJI FPV system. And then they've got DJI FPV goggles. And then they have FPV goggles V2. And then right. now the These new the goggles, goggles are, are really V2. The third version? <laughs> which really aren't the third version because they've got the original goggles and then the goggles RE. Uh, it's yeah i don't know their yeah. english version they're of their names are the worst yeah they're 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 ridiculous um so i, I their naming convention somebody's somebody's making some money that, <laughs> but i don't know if they should. somebody's gonna have to write a paper on it <laughs> so uh but definitely interesting we'll have to wait and see if they're gonna be compliant my guess i mean oops my uh my hard guess is no uh, to be honest with you, uh, just because DJI does seems to do everything that they can to, to force you to buy new stuff. Yeah, I'm going to wait um, and see. But my, the last rumors I heard, there's a lot of cross compatibility between the new stuff, which I hope is true. Yeah, so we'll see. Um, I'm not going to hold my breath for it. But uh, if you're still if you're still into the DJI um, digital, analog. which is a great system. What's that? Somebody went for analog. analog. Yeah. Hey, I love analog. I, I definitely do, but I do like the Christmas of digital. Um, and I've been able to fly the DJI. I have a set of DJIs, um, and I've been able to fly uh, Dave's uh, HD zeros, which were really good too. So um, digital in any form is definitely a great, great way to go um, if you want that fidelity. All right. So this one kind of piqued my interest. This is from Popular Science. Um why controlling a drone with lasers has its perks and pitfalls. So uh, the UK, uh, a British defense firm called Kinetic, spelled with a Q on both sides, um, 
has uh, announced uh, the successful control of a drone by laser. Okay, so first off, I'm gonna I'm gonna say drone control by laser. Uh, we've we've always uh, you know done a lot of this stuff with radio frequency. Doing it with lasers, well, in my mind, it's probably not the best. It is possible, uh, but to me, it seems easily defeatable. And uh, I mean, one of the first things you need to do to defeat lasers is just block the signal. Physically, mirror. Like, that's all you need to do. What's that? A mirror, a mirror, or even think of it from a this bird. perspective. <laughs> How about just chaff? You know, I mean, you put you put a bunch of a tin foil in the air, and I mean, you're going to disrupt that signal. So, in the meantime, uh, and I'm not wearing a tin foil hat. I'm just saying, <laughs> tin foil would work. Uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, your signals aren't going all over the place, and other people can't receive Correct. them. And that's the point. So that's the point that they're making is that laser uh, laser control, and we'll get to it here in a second, is is uh, essentially nobody's going to know because it's a direct link from the from the sender to the receiver. It's in uh, uninterceptable, um, but uh, it is susceptible to to disruption. So, so uh, what if you so what if you ahead. had a hybrid version of it where it was mostly autonomous, but you just sent a couple of waypoints at a time with the lasers. You give okay. it a couple of commands ahead, it does that, and it doesn't need to be constantly perceiving the current Correct. Um, input. So the good thing with this is if the if you're, uh, let's say you're using this. Obviously, this is a milita- a defense firm, so military use. If your if your opponent doesn't know that you're using it, it's great. If they do know you're using it, then it's possible to, you know, in terms, you know, intercept the signal or, or break the signal. Um, so, and that's kind of the points that they make here. So the demonstration took place this earlier this year at the Salisbury Plain uh, training ground in Southern England near Stonehenge. The drone was controlled by a system called Free Space Optical Communication in which information is turned into light transmitted through the open sky and picked up by a dedicated receiver. FSOC provides very high bandwidth, very low probability of detection communications, low logistical footprint, and the potential to negate the considerable investment that adversaries may have made in denying the RO spectrum. Um, as we all know, deny, essentially subverting the RO spectrum is fairly easy to do. Um, the demonstration took place in March of 2020 as part of a broader push by the United Kingdom's Defense Science and Technology Laboratory effort to make drone communications more resilient. Um, Let's see. Uh, The promise of this approach, though, is for the possibility of clear high bandwidth transmission of vast quantities of data rapidly with light and done openly wherever the sender and receiver may be. Um, They go on to talk about fiber optic cable, which is is great for, you know, things like high-speed internet and of data um making this com- kind of communication work has been the subject of military research for decades um darpa uh, collaborate on the optical and radio frequency combined link experiment this program aimed to combine the high data capacity of light communications with signal fidelity of radio radio sorry um so radio signals are sent over known frequencies understood and monitored uh for over a century 
The nature of radio transmission means the waves can be observed beyond where they are received as the signals travel through open air and sometimes refract or diffuse across terrain and atmospheric phenomena. And uh, obviously, this is the basis for remote ID, is sending things over RF. This is the way we control our uh, quads uh, and model airplanes. This is how we transmit uh, video signals. So, um, but as we all know, um, other people can see those and um, possibly create uh, essentially hacks into it or spoofs of it. So the promise of optical communication, specifically based on lasers, is that it will instead concentrate all its transmitted information in a narrow beam of light. Free space optical communication is almost impossible to intercept or detect as the laser beam travels directly from one platform over a very narrow path. Kinetic describes on his website, interception would require an adversary to be physically present in the path of the beam, something that is extremely difficult to achieve. Um... If interception is difficult, maintaining a signal is likely not easy. While the drone would have the advantage of knowing where the directed beam is coming from and automatically orienting its receiver to that point, it could become vulnerable to laser dazzlers designed to disable the sensors. Laser dazzlers? Okay, chat. <laughs> <laughs> so, Disco balls. Uh, it, yeah, exactly, right? So definitely interesting. Uh, I see its I see its capability. I also see its downfalls. Um, but you know, Alex may be on to a point. Is if you have an autonomous drone send, sending a brief signal bursts, that kind of thing, might be a, a viable solution to it. But again, works great if nobody knows you're doing it. Uh, possibly a problem. Well, now we know the UK is doing it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> See, this is the part I don't get. It used to be back in the day, and you know, side tangent for everybody uh, on my soapbox. It used to be back in the day that nobody knew what everybody else's military was doing. They were used to be like state secrets, and now all of a sudden, it's like, hey, this is what we're doing. It, well, it's presentation of power. Yeah, it's well, a deterrent. Drone lasers are not a deterrent. <laughs> But definitely yeah. interesting. So uh, this uh, comes out of uh, Mexico. Um, I'm only gonna do the part, the top part of this article. The bottom part, I'm, I'll link it. But it gets a little political um, with uh, the uh, Mexican government. I'm not about calling anybody out, but. Um, Mexico will attempt to send an aquatic drone, and I know we're all we're all flying guys here, but uh, aquatic drones are pretty cool too. Similar technology. Uh, send an aquatic drone into a collapsed coal mine where ten miners have been trapped since last week. Uh, Laura Velasquez from the National Civil Defense Coordinator said Monday that images from the drone could help authorities decide whether to send in divers without putting them at risk. Uh, she also said that 25 pumps were working to remove water from the flooded shafts. Water that was once uh, 111 feet deep uh, was now between 55 and 78 feet. Uh, the mine in Sabinas, Coahuila, uh, I hope I said that right, about 70 miles southwest of Eagle Pass in Texas, collapsed last Wednesday with 15 miners inside. Five managed to escape with injuries. Authorities say the miners breached a neighboring space filled with water, and there currently has been no contact with the remaining 10. Uh, 
So uh, hopefully uh, that technology is able to get in there, uh, figure out if there's a safe way to get in and, and get those miners out. Um, hopefully they're okay. Um, but definitely another use of technology for, for good um, that I can appreciate. All right. Uh, this comes from Alex. This is really cool. Uh, this is the first energy core. Um, and it seems I didn't, we don't have these guys here in Arizona, but it seems like they do cover a lot of, uh, different areas in terms of, of power. Um, but one of the cool things with them is if your drone gets caught in the power lines or crashes into a utility pole or substation, um, all you have to do is call them and they will retrieve your drone for you. Um, obviously it's a big safety thing, uh, never trying to mess with power lines or, or substations or anything like that. Um, that kind of stuff will kill people, uh, if you don't know what you're doing. So definitely best to let the professionals do that. Um, they even go into, uh, um, showcase a, a drone app. It looks like it's a, a phone, um, drone app and, uh, First energy. It looks like it's maybe something they developed, which is kind of cool. Alex, did you I look into that? I haven't looked into the app yet. I haven't downloaded it to try it, but all I did was I saw an ad on YouTube. It was like, what if it's pretty it, cool? Because uh, the ad on YouTube was, it caught me off guard. I didn't, right. I wasn't expecting one for, oh, it, it was, and it was like, and it was in a positive note too. It wasn't yeah. a, don't fly your drone kind of thing. Not super negative. It's like, we understand accidents happen. Let's be yeah. safe about this. Exactly. Which was, a, I like the approach and it just caught me off guard. Yeah. And I thought it was really cool. And the other cool thing is, is they have this little Thank section you. underneath that says, so now you got your first drone. Now what? Um, so they have links to the, to the uh, FAA uh, getting started site uh, for UAS how to become a licensed pilot, uh, how to register, um, and a, a few little safety rules. Uh, <laughs> keep your drone at least 200 feet away from power lines. Obviously, that's not an official FAA rule. It's just a, I mean, I would Guideline. say. It's, Unless yeah, you want to get some something... really good diving videos, then stay 200 yeah. feet away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, don't fly your drone in the dark or bad weather. I mean, could be for some people, yes. Other people, you know, can still fly it. <laughs> or you see that, know. oh, hey, I didn't think about flying in dark or bad weather. I should give that a shot. Or you could be, <laughs> you could be Dan and just conform <laughs> code everything and fly in everything. Uh, nothing stops him. And then uh, always keep your drone at or below 400 feet and where you can see it. So, I mean, this is this is good. This is a great way for somebody who generally has zero to do with drones to, you know throw on there that the information they provide is great it's not a beat you over the head kind of thing mm -hmm. it's just informational and they're doing a good service i mean they're they're protecting yeah. people they're protecting their equipment and they're protecting their customers um and and definitely uh, obviously willing to help so this yeah, i wonder is how many so, how many people have called when their drones have gotten stuck in power lines like enough to put that on their website yeah. right i mean they and do cover a lot of area so like we got toledo Ohio, um, the illuminating company, Pin Power. So, I mean, they're, they're yeah, Potomac, West Penn. Um, so there's there's a lot of different areas that they service. 
Um, I, I imagine most of this is on the east side of the country. Yeah. Um, but this is definitely uh, really cool. So Part of me uh, wants to try calling the number, but I also <laughs> don't have a use for calling the number. We'll just call them and say thank you. I mean, <laughs> that's I mean that's a that's a definite uh, good thing. So <laughs> will um, they get it out of a tree for you? <laughs> that would be that quite the probably service. Probably going to be power line. Yeah, yeah, well, if it's I on would... their property and it's yeah, in a tree, been. maybe then. So definitely cool. So uh, that's all I've got for this evening. Uh, I just thought some of this stuff was pretty neat. Uh, Dave, what do you got for us? Just that uh, we have uh, produced, along with um, Pilot Institute, uh, Flight Test uh, Flight Test Community Association, and Drone Service Providers Alliance Organization, a couple of pages that uh, describe uh, an update on remote ID. Uh, we have uh, learned that um, we should go back to basics and also try to do a little bit of rudimentary education for folks who are new to the hobby or forgot the details of the rule and we've also dug in and uh, done a fair amount of uh, detail work and uh, thanks to, to dan for rereading the uh, entire document once again and uh, i think we've uh, all done that a couple times recently uh, but that's um, that and the uh, we'll, we'll uh, let you know what what uh, the decision is on what actions we should we think we should be taking out of the astm the working group is getting together tomorrow to uh, discuss uh, the additions that uh, we talked about earlier uh, to the MOC and working on the drone safety team. That work continues on the UAS ASRS uh, because I don't speak in full words, only abbreviations. The, <laughs> man, the UAS uh, Aviation Safety Reporting System and how it pertains to uh, uh, to drones. That's working. And we're also wrapping up uh, the ACK TG-13, the Aviation, Advanced Aviation Advisory Committee Tasking Group 13, which is a uh, comeback on a, uh, a white paper from the, written by the FAA. So that's, that's happening as well. So busy, but uh, good work. And to build a little on what Dave was saying, that document that we were all working on for uh, remote ID related stuff was heavily featured in Joshua Bardwell and It's Blunty's news stream yesterday. They even put part of it on the, the show while they were talking about it and talked about Dave and the FPV Freedom Coalition. And this is our breakdown of all those things. And they did a really great job going over some of the details. And that there was a lot of work put in by a lot of different people on that mm -hmm. document. I know each one of us, uh, Dave created the document, and each one of us went in there and and did edits and clarifications, and we argued back and forth a little <laughs> bit, and uh, as well as uh, Greg and from Pilot Institute uh, out. Um, Vic. There's a lot of, yeah, there was a lot of, of community involvement, uh, within that document. So, uh, we're hoping, uh, once, uh, fully complete and released and, and videos are done and, and whatnot, it provides a lot of information. And one of the things I feel like, uh, it's massively my fault. And some of the things that Dan and I went back and forth on was the difference between bind and fly and almost ready to fly and remote ID. So 
uh, we've all been saying that bind and fly should be good to go, um, pre-builds and, and that kind of stuff. And that terminology is not factually correct. So bind and fly would be a complete system that uh, comes with a receiver, comes with a remote, or could just come with the receiver that works with the remote that you have. That kind of system would actually be required to, if it was a complete kit with a, a bind and fly system, would have to comply with standard remote ID. So if you are a manufacturer um, who sells pre-mades, um, pre-builds, that kind of thing, um, the, the, the term clarification is almost ready to fly. Um, so you want to have something that is a, that is incomplete in some form or fashion. Um, and, you know, one of the things we've always espoused is that, you know, limiting it, like taking the receiver out and letting the person choose, um, is a way to provide an almost ready to fly that is, will be compatible with broadcast modules. Um, and will not have to go through the rigmarole of all the, the, the stuff that uh, standard uh, remote ID uh, entails, which includes compatibility with your transmitter um, and uh, remote ID included in that in that transmitter as well as the the drone itself. So, um, I just wanted to clarify that uh, because that was a big topic uh, that we discussed and, and went back and forth on. And I just want to, I can't remember what we've called it all this time, but I feel like bind and fly is what we've been calling it. Um, so I just wanted to clear that up. So almost ready to fly, missing major components, final assembly done by the end user um, is all a requirement for, to fall under the home built um, uh, exception essentially, and be able to use uh, for a broadcast module and not have to comply with standard. And this of course is a, very important point for the uh, retailers in uh, in the community. So we've uh, reached out to uh, the retailers that we know, which is most of them, most of the large ones certainly, and uh, shared the document we wrote. And uh, we're open to questions. And Josh and I will be on on a couple of live streams. And uh, so we'll we will work to get the uh, this out and uh, make sure that, that we've got the correct information. Uh, and refute some disinformation that is uh, that's getting around. So we're happy to do this, and I think it's a nice piece of work. And uh, how Pilot Institute, FTCA, FPVFC jumped in, and BSBA. All you know these these folks that we all know and 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 appreciate so much. You know they all jumped in over a weekend, and then Monday we had this done uh, very quickly. So great. Great piece of work on my thanks. And so the way I've been thinking about it, and I try, want to explain it to people, is that the first bit of remote ID jumps into effect September 16th, I think it was anyway, the middle of this September this year. Mm -hmm. And that part says that anybody producing a drone for use in the United States must comply with standard remote ID. So you have to build a drone that has GPS and the radio and tracks you and does all these really difficult things unless there are and then there's two exceptions one exception to that is you're building the drone for your own personal recreation or you're doing it for education I suppose you're building it for a class or a stem class or something and then the other exception is if the drone is under 250 grams it can be produced without uh, remote ID requirements. 
But then the other half of the remote ID stuff comes in a year later. That's for the operating requirements. So right now it's just the production requirements that we're really talking about. Right. And of course, this is the way the FAA likes to write rules, right? We all fly under Part 107 if we're flying recreationally. Oh, it happens to be the exception for recreational flight, right. which is under Part 107. It gets so, so hard to read and follow those things. Yeah. And that, that ties right. into that these rules are somewhat vague and somewhat vague on purpose, and it's up to the interpretation of the FAA or the person, you know, looking at your flight saying, oh, this does or does not comply with the regulation. And that's why we really want to push the FAA to release some advisory circulars that give much better clarification to all of their employees saying, this is what we really meant by this rule. Right. So, and that would come down to, you know, even simple things that, that we've been going back and forth about is, you know, the, the final rule itself does not mention spotters uh, as being okay for uh, yeah, FPV flight. It really and looks so very clear to me when you read it. It says the person holding the controls, flying the remote or the, the right. drone, has to be able to see the drone. So right. as soon as you put on FPV goggles, and we've all been told by the FAA, yeah, if you put on goggles, you can't see the drone anymore. Now you're not compatible with remote ID. But we also right. know or the FAA is saying that's not really what our intent was. So yeah, right. and in section and, 349 in the reauthorization, it completely negates that and for the use of visual observers. So right, you know, right, and it's and we had this what we're referring to is section 89.115 A and B, and we had this conversation with the executive director of the UAS Integration Office on January 21, 2021. And so, so a year and a half ago. Um, yeah, yeah, a year and a half ago. And so we were worried then, and uh, Dan and Josh are absolutely right. This is not the intent of the FAA. They have assured us that the that FPV is okay. We have a visual observer. It's okay for 107 as well as recreational use. And as Dan was saying, an advisory circular would be really helpful around yeah, this point. I could certainly yeah. see an example. You're flying around your neighborhood, your yard, whatever. You've got a nosy neighbor who doesn't like what you're doing. They pull in an FAA friend of theirs, and they say, oh, yeah, look at this rule. It says that you have to be able to see your drone at all times, and this person's got goggles on. They can't see their drone at all times. Well, let's let's give them a fine, even if that, yeah, and, you know. Yeah. And let's assume they have a, v a VO, a visual observer, right? Sure. Even with yeah. VO, right? So if somebody wants so, to yeah. interpret the rule very literally, they could get somebody else in trouble for it. So that's why we really want the FAA to clarify that in writing. Exactly. Right. So, you know, and there's a number of different uh, topics that we'll be asking for advisory circulars on. But uh, definite uh, sh shout out to everybody who was involved with uh, uh, putting that together. I know I was sitting in my truck at lunch uh, one day at work, uh, um, pounding out some notes and and trying to take care of uh, some of this um, to assist. So, um, and it's funny too, because just amongst the people who are working on this, there's different interpretations. Mm -hmm. So Dan's interpretation is different from mine. It's, you know, in, in some circumstances for me, it's like, oh, well, you know, we're, we're calling back to the, you know, the visual observer, whereas he's seeing it literally, you know? So um, if, if our interpretations and we do this stuff on a daily are different than um, somebody else's could be too. So um, definite uh, work on clarification there. So 
Anyway, uh, Alex, you got anything for us this evening, sir? Um, no, not that I can think of. You have placed second in a recent race. That's noteworthy. Congratulations. Yeah, I know. Didn't want to toot your own horn, but <laughs> good, good job for you for yeah, another podium finish. We're, we're glad Alex is doing those races because he brings that racer perspective that the other three of yeah. us don't have. Yeah, for sure. Dan, Still anything looking, else from you? Looking for that, looking for that ultra senior uh, uh, class uh, category, Alex. <laughs> you know, when... I don't need that. No, 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 for me, this is the 60, no, but... you know, 60, 65 and above. That's not needed. <laughs> That's funny. It's not physical limitations necessarily everything Maybe slows down as you get older a little bit <laughs> but i can't I, see, I see I can't some hear. older folks races. that's good that's good uh, careful Alex. but are they competitive <laughs> it depends at what age you consider older folks oh no <laughs> i think this is exactly why dave wants the over 65 category right well, they have they have over forty and over fifty at I O. No, they have over fifty at I O race. Yeah, so, no you come there, Dave. Excellent. I'm excited. Yeah, you got anything for us? Find a racer. I was just going to say that we should talk a little bit more about the race day quads lawsuit. Um, you touched on it at the very beginning, uh, but we didn't really bring it up or mention too much about that. So, yeah. Um, like, bring people up to speed. What is it? Why were we concerned about it? What happened? Yeah, so, I mean, a couple different things. So, race day quads, if you don't know, most everybody in the industry or who participates in the hobby, I'm sure, does know. But at any rate, uh, race day quads uh, filed a lawsuit uh, against the FAA uh, pertaining to remote ID um, from several different avenues. And... I, a couple different things. Uh, I think there was a Fourth Amendment concern. Um, there were uh, issues brought up with FRIAs. There was issues brought up with the way the rule was created, um, that kind of thing. And uh, this has been ongoing for a year and a half, I think. Um, I know Tyler announced this at the protest that he would uh, take this route. Um, and uh he did and the judge responded back um to the um merits of the case uh and basically flat out denied them all um and and shot rdq down uh pardon the pun um and uh you know we there were some concerning things uh i think one of the things that I was particularly concerned about is that it could have um, resulted in one form or fashion as taking preemption away from the FAA, which basically means that every state, every city, every county, um, every town could create different rules and, and essentially create a patchwork of, of of rules and and there were some challenges from RDQ that that could have brought that to light, um, which would make things extremely difficult for everybody. Um, if I were to travel like Dave and I did, we went to Ohio. The rules could be different uh, than they are in Arizona or New York, and 
if you don't know what those rules are, you could inadvertently violate something um, and get yourself into trouble. Um, if I stepped into the next city over, um, and for those of you who don't know, the Phoenix area is a mesh of 10 to 12 different cities all in one area. If I stepped over to the next city, which literally is two miles from my house, um, the rules could be different. So uh, it makes things very challenging, um, not only for hobbyists, but even more so for uh, people doing commercial work. Um, it can create a lot of chaos. So um, that was definitely a concern. And there were some um, hints about that during the, was it called, I don't know the, the terms, but they did that uh, hearing or something where they were talking with the, the judges. Oral, were ta argument. oral arguments. Oral arguments. And they yeah. asked some questions that were definitely getting at the the judges being concerned about privacy rules and about being you know flying underneath the fence line or treetops in your yard and they were hit hinting at some of that as being concerns of theirs but right that didn't really show up in the final rule as much not as much no um yeah, from but, what we understand um, at the 41 pages i i looked at a 41 page decision as wow this is really long and apparently it's not apparently it's very short and there's an implication that the door is open for future litigation. So that, as well as the reinforcement of preemption, you know, were the you know looking for a positive out of this. Those were two positives that we that we took away from this. Yeah, and I think you know, and and one of the things we've always said is that there are different approaches to accomplish you know a goal. And for us. Uh, as an organization, the FPVFC, we've chosen to work uh, from within, essentially, um, collaborate with the FAA, ensure that the rules that they they uh, do bring about are uh, attainable, are do not restrict the hobby, um, uh, and easy to, essentially, easy to comply with, um, don't create a barrier for entry for newcomers, um, etc. And uh, we worked uh, very diligently on the remote ID response um, from the NPRM. Uh, Dave has done amazing things with the Joint Advisory uh, Committee and the ACK, both the same thing, just different names. Um, and uh, both Dan and Dave, uh, actually, I, I should say Alex and Dave uh, did uh, Joint Advisory Committee and, and ACK. And then uh, Dave and Dan have uh, participated in the uh, ARC, uh, the BVLOS ARC. So many darn I, I acronyms. Swear, it's it's crazy. Um, but um, yeah, it really is alphabet soup. So, you know, we've chosen to go that route. Uh, I think we've made some positive changes. Um, and that's not to say RDQ um, wasn't, uh, wasn't doing it for the better of the community. I just think two different approaches or that we um, agree with everything the faa does uh we give no, them advice and they not. definitely don't take it all but <laughs> for for anybody who knows me i get on my soapbox at least once a month on these meetings and and talk about the faa and you know it, it's you know there's there's some positives and there's some negatives and um just like anything in life nobody gets it right so uh i think that uh having you know, being part of the input is a solution uh, in it, in and of itself um, to ensure that we're not just boxed out of the hobby. 
because there are other interests um, out there who want access to the national airspace. Um, but at the same time, you know, we as hobbyists deserve that as well. So, um, especially for uh, one of the hobbies with the, the greatest uh, safety record um, and uh, the safest form of aviation and one of the, the in my mind, the best uh, examples of STEM programming, period. So, you know, it's just uh, we want to protect the hobby and, and uh, RDQ wants to protect the hobby as well uh, just tend to take a different tack on it and um, but uh, you know it is what it is so there is room in there for future uh, legis- uh, litigation um, I should say and that came in the form of um, some examples that RDQ gave but hasn't happened yet like the the potential, to abuse remote ID, uh, by uh, for officials to abuse remote ID. Um, obviously without something else like if, if a pilot got attacked because of the remote ID information, was that one of the examples? Yeah. Yeah. And so not a reason to change the rule of pilot safety. It's not a reason to change the rule is basically what they said. Right. So, you know, one of the, one of the concerns is, is if that does happen, then that creates a potential form of future litigation. So um, that door is still open. Um, and, um, you know, one of the biggest things we are concerned with, and I know a lot of people in the community are concerned with, is that privacy, that ability to fly without um, somebody uh, trying to, who doesn't agree with your drone. And, and there's thousands upon thousands of examples on this. You, just need to you know read through facebook a couple of times but um people who you know don't agree with you flying your drone who think you're spying on them who think you're doing this or that or the other um to assault a pilot or steal your expensive gear or um shoot your drone out of the sky or any number of other violent things that can happen um and that have happened in the past um So, you know, it creates that potential. So, you know, one of the things, you know, we've, we've talked about a lot with the FAA is that, that issue, um, that concern that, that things remote ID could lead to things like this happening when the public has access to that information. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, God, I hope, you know, and pray that nothing ever bad happens to anybody. Uh, as a result of this, but um, there are some concerns. So we'll see what happens. And, um, you know, that challenge is still out there. And anything I missed? The only other thing I have would be to ask everybody watching if they've got any remote ID questions or questions about the lawsuit that uh, we could answer, or if we can't answer, we'll try to find the answers for them. Exactly. I know there was there was a lot of chat going on in Joshua Bardwell's live stream talking about remote ID and a lot of people had a lot of questions. And I'm pretty sure Joshua Bardwell also mentioned he was gonna he's working on a on a video uh, to hopefully come out soon with clarification on what he currently understands about remote ID. Yep. And I think he was getting and... some of those details from from us. 
and that's that's great <laughs> you know and, and we're happy to provide those i know that uh dave and i will be on some some streams and some uh shows um and we'll have uh video clarifying some of this as well so if you have a question about remote id let us know jump in here into discord uh hit one of us up um or send us an email our contact emails are on our website um just let us know uh what your question is so that we can make sure and get that answered for you um it's it's fast approaching and whether you're an organization a company who's looking to do standard remote id to be compliant by next month or uh, you're a, an end user a, a pilot who uh, just wants to make sure they're doing the right thing to not get in trouble um we, we we're happy to help and who knows maybe there's somebody out here there who has some other interpretations of the rules and are seeing things that we're not seeing and that the faa should clarify and if enough people point things out the faa probably will feel like they they have to clarify some of that stuff yeah for sure so all right well with that uh thank you everybody do appreciate it and we'll see you next yeah see you guys in two weeks yeah. oh man i joined it just the end <laughs> yeah <laughs> you got the last minute if that no, i didn't even i didn't even realize it was going on tonight i completely good, forgot man. all You're right totally i'll be good. here in the two weeks all, all right, right thanks good, <laughs> thank bye. you all right bye